Hi there. <laughs> Welcome to another Womance public access read-along of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I am Isabeau, your even chapter reader. And I am Morgan, your odd chapter reader. This week... I will be reading to you. Uh, It says uh, volume three, chapter eight in my text, which makes it chapter 34 uh, for those of you in the American text. (laughs) Um, Splits evenly into two, so that does make it an even number. Morgan, if you'd be so kind as to remind us what happened in the previous chapter. Yeah, so Jane found out that she is blood-related to Sinjin and his sisters, that they are, like, first cousins, um, and that Sinjin's uncle who died and left him nothing was her uncle who died and left her everything. And so now she's very wealthy, and she's no longer alone in the world, and she has set it up so that her fortune is actually divided evenly amongst the cousins, so she has no guilt but she's now a very comfortable woman and she no longer has to be a schoolmistress. Uh, but she'll still wrap up her full two weeks and assist in the transition of a new person. Yeah, because she is a good stewardess of capital. Yeah. But what else is important is that now she is known as Jane Eyre again in the world. Somebody might be looking for a certain Jane Eyre. <laughs> Someone was. With that... It was near Christmas by the time all was settled. The season of general holiday approached. I now closed Morton's school, taking care that the parting should not be barren on my side. Good fortune opens the hand as well as the heart wonderfully. And to give something somewhat when we have largely received is but to afford a vent to the unusual ebullition of the sensations. I had long felt with pleasure that many of my rustic scholars liked me, and when we parted, that consciousness was confirmed. They manifested their affection plainly and strongly. Deep was my gratification to find I had really a place in their unsophisticated hearts. (laughs) I just, I'm sorry. So weird. Also, like, the season of general holiday approach wore on Christmas much, Jane? God, what are you, a Starbucks cup? (laughs) You got her. You got her. Deep was my gratification to find I had really a place in their unsophisticated hearts. I promised them that that never a week should pass in future, that I did not visit them and give them an hour's teaching in their school. Mr. Rivers came up as having seen the classes, now numbering 60 girls file out before me and lock the door. I... Stood with the key in my hand, exchanging a few words of special farewell with some half dozen of my best scholars. As decent, respectable, modest, and well-informed young women as could be found in the ranks of the British peasantry. Oh my god, though. (laughs) Why does she have to qualify it like that? Like, fuck's sake, Jane. God, British peasantry on this page. It's wall-to-wall British peasantry. True story. And that is saying a great deal, for after all, the British peasantry are the best taught, best mannered, most self-respecting of any in Europe since those days I have seen Paysans and Burien. 
and the best of them seem to me ignorant, coarse, and besotted compared with my Morton girls. So that means French and German women of the peasant class. So when is she spending time with those women? Also, like, the sentence begins and I'm like, oh, she's going to say they're the best of people. And no, she just makes it like a nationalist sentiment. Do you consider you have got your reward for a season of exertion, asked Mr. Rivers when they were gone? Does not the consciousness of having done some real good in your day and generation give pleasure? Doubtless. And you have only toiled a few months. Would not a life devoted to the task of regenerating your race be well spent? Ah, racism, nationalism. Here we go. (laughs) This is the thing, like, I've been thinking about this lately. Like, it would be nice at this point in history sometimes, I think, to live in a different country than America because people in other countries don't want to be perceived as ugly Americans. So... They do stuff like get vaccinated, you know, or at least this is my theory that partially why our anti-vaccination movement is largest is because there are a lot of people in other countries who would be that way, but they don't want to be associated with us. But I also think that there's this thing about ugly Americans as like an idea that prevents people from looking, from believing that the problem exists in their own country. And I see this mostly with like people in Europe who are like, Americans are racist. And it's like, yes, and so are you. Like (laughs) Americans, you know, have benefited from, like there's not like a white person in the world today who is not touched by the black slavery in the world. And that continues to perpetuate. And I follow this woman here we go, on TikTok, who lives on Svalbard, an island close to the North Pole. And someone asked, like, are there any other races on your island? And she said, we have people from all these different countries. And the person followed up and was like, yeah, that's not what I meant, though. Like, do you have people of different? And she just played dumb. And I was like, no, like, I know you know, you know, (laughs) like, I know you know Mm -hmm. what that word means now. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean something different. And certainly a lot of that is because of America, because you've been watching our movies and our TV shows, eating our McDonald's, drinking our soda pops. Availing yourself of our media. Yeah. And it's like, so like to act like there's like some border and then once you cross it, race as a problem ceases to exist is absurd. It's a fascinating blindness that I find most egregious in British white folks and South African Afrikaner because they're like well we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission what have you done and I'm like it's really interesting to me that you want to bring up 1992 also like (laughs) Like you want to (laughs) compare I know I'm just like let's not though like everybody's bad and that's my point yeah like our absence is so great that it seems like you're really squinting to see the light at the end of that tunnel you know like yeah and that's the thing it's like I I mean, I don't have any problem with people being, like, critical, of course, you know. But I will say, like, also you. And, like, are what are you doing to combat racist policy uh, in your country mm-hmm. <laughs> where you actually have, you know, a, a modus operandi of influence besides just talking to, like, American teenagers who can't vote yet, little baby Anglophiles or whatever, yeah. So we're about to get into some real British nationalism and it's going to show its ugly heads and both of you and I get to be like, hey, Britain, 
Remember this? Because it's still a happening. Here we go. There's a reason that Megan and Harry left. <laughs> and you've only toiled a few months. Would not a life devoted to the task of regenerating your race be well spent? Yes, I said, but I could not go on forever so. I want to enjoy my own faculties as well as to cultivate those of other people. I must enjoy them now. Don't recall either my mind or body to the school. I am out of it and disposed for a full holiday. He looked grave. What now? What sudden eagerness is this, you events? What are you going to do? To be active, as active as I can, and first I must beg you to set Hannah at liberty and get somebody else to wait on you. Do you want her? Yes, to go with me to Morehouse. Diane and Mary will be at home in a week, and I want to have everything in order against their arrival. I understand. I thought you were for flying off on some excursion. It is better so. Hannah shall go with you. Tell her to be ready by tomorrow then, and here is the schoolroom key. I will give you the key of my cottage in the morning. He took it. You give it up very gleefully, said he. I don't quite understand your lightheartedness, because I cannot tell what employment you propose to yourself as a substitute for the one you are relinquishing. What aim, what purpose, what ambition in life have you now? It's very presumptuous. My first aim will be to clean down. Do you comprehend the full force of the expression to clean down Morehouse from chamber to cellar? My next, to rub it up with beeswax, oil, and an indefinite number of claws till it glitters again. My third, to arrange every chair, table, bed, carpet with mathematical precision. Afterwards, I shall go near to ruin you in coals and peat to keep up good fires in every room. And lastly, the two days preceding that on which your sisters are expected will be devoted by Hannah and me to such... A beating of eggs, sorting of currants, grating of spices, compounding of Christmas cakes, chopping up of materials for mince pies and solemnizing of other culinary rites, as words can convey but an inadequate notion of to the uninitiated like you. My purpose, in short, is to have all things in absolute perfect state of readiness for Diana and Mary before next Thursday, and my ambition is to give them a beau ideal of a welcome when they come. Do you think she knows what goes in mince pies? No, I don't. She's being pretty evasive. Materials for mince pies. She literally has no idea. <laughs> Hannah's gonna do it. Yeah. Hannah's gonna do everything Jane just described. <laughs> right. Sinjin smiled slightly. Still, he was dissatisfied. It's all very well for the present, said he, but seriously, I trust that when the first flush of vivacity is over, you will look a little higher than domestic endearments and household joys. The best thing the world has, I interrupted. We know that's a lie, Jane. No, Jane, no. This world is not the scene of fruition. Do not attempt to make it so, nor of rest. Do not turn slothful. I mean, on the contrary, to be busy. Jane, I excuse you for the present. Two months' grace I allow you for the full enjoyment of your new position and for pleasing yourself with this late-found charm of relationship. But then, I hope you will begin to look beyond Morehouse and Morton and sisterly society and the selfish calm and sensual comfort of civilized affluence. I hope your energies will then once more trouble you with their strength. Feels like a threat and a promise. <laughs> I looked at him with surprise. Sinjin, I said. I think you are almost wicked to talk so. Stop it. That's your cousin. <laughs> Stop reading it that way. Sinjin, I said. I think you're almost <laughs> wicked to talk so. 
I'm disposed to be as content as a queen, and you try to stir me up to restlessness. To what end? To the end of turning to profit the talents which God has committed to your keeping, and of which he will surely one day demand a strict account. Jane, I shall watch you closely and anxiously. I warn you of that, and try to restrain the disproportionate fervor with which you throw yourself into commonplace home pleasures. Don't cling so tenaciously to ties of the flesh. Save your constancy and adder for an adequate cause. Forbear to waste them on trite transient objects. Do you hear, Jane? Yes, just as if you were speaking Greek. I feel I have adequate cause to be happy, and I will be happy. Goodbye. <laughs> happy at Morehouse I was. <laughs> And hard I worked, and so did Hannah, and she was charmed to see how jovial I could be amidst the bustle of a house turned topsy-turvy, how I could brush and dust and clean and cook, and really, after a day or two of confusion worse confounded, it was delightful, by degrees, to invoke order from the chaos ourselves had made. I'd previously taken a journey to S-Beep to purchase some new furniture, my cousins having given me carte blanche to effect what alterations I pleased, and by some of having been set aside for that purpose. The ordinary sitting room and bedrooms I left much as they were, for I knew Diane and Mary would derive more pleasure from seeing again the old homey table, homely tables and chairs and beds than from the spectacle of the smartest innovations. Still, some novelty was necessary to give to their return the piquancy with which I wished it to be invested. Dark, handsome new carpets and curtains, an arrangement of some carefully selected antique ornaments and porcelain and bronze, new coverings and mirrors and dressing cases for the toilet tables, answered the end. They looked fresh without being glaring. A spare parlor and bedroom. I refurnished entirely with old mahogany and crimson upholstery. I laid canvas on the passage and carpet on the stairs. When all was finished, I thought Morehouse as complete a model of bright, modest, snugness within as it was as this season a specimen of wintry waste and desert dreariness without the eventful thursday at length came they were expected about dark and ere dusk fires were lit upstairs and below the kitchen in perfect trim hannah and i were dressed and all was in readiness sinjin arrived first i'd en and treated him to keep quite clear of the house till everything was arranged, and indeed the bare idea of the commotion at once sordid and trivial going on within its walls sufficed to scare him to estrangement. He found in the kitchen watching the he found me in the kitchen, watching the progress of certain cakes for tea, then baking. Approaching the hearth he asked, If I was at last satisfied how if I was at last satisfied with housemaid's work, I answered by inviting him to accompany me on a general inspection of the results of my labors. With some difficulty, I got him to make the tour of the house. He just looked in at the doors I opened, and when he wandered upstairs and downstairs, he said I must have gone through a great deal of fatigue and trouble to have effected such considerable changes in so short a time. But not a syllable did he utter indicating pleasure in the improved aspect of his abode. This silence damped me. I thought perhaps the alterations had disturbed some old associations he valued. I inquired whether this was the case, no doubt in a somewhat crestfallen tone. Not at all. He had, on the contrary, remarked I had scrupulously respected every association. He feared indeed I must have bestowed more thought on the matter than it was worth. How many minutes, for instance, had I devoted to studying the arrangement of this very room? 
By the by, could I tell him where such a book was? I showed him the volume on the shelf. He took it down, and withdrawing to his accustomed window recess, he began to read it. Now, I did not like this, reader. Sinjin was a good man, but I began to feel he had spoken truth of himself when he said he was hard and cold. The humanities and amenities of life had no attraction for him. Its peaceful enjoyment's no charm. Literally, he lived only to aspire. After that was good and great, certainly, but still he would never rest, nor approve of others resting round him. So he looked at his lofty forehead, still and pale as a white stone, and his fine lineaments fixed in study. I comprehended all at once that he would hardly make a good husband, that it would be a trying thing to be his wife. I understood, as by inspiration, the nature of his love for Miss Oliver. I agreed with him that it was but a love of the senses. I comprehended how he should despise himself for the feverish influence it exercised over him, how he should wish to stifle and destroy it, how he should mistrust its ever-conducing permanently to his happiness or hers. I saw he was of the material form which nature hews her heroes, Christian and pagan, her lawgivers, her statesmen, her conquerors, a steadfast bulwark for great interests to rest upon, but at the fireside, too often a cold, cumbrous column, gloomy and out of place. This parlor is not his sphere, I reflected, the Himalayan ridge or cafre, bush, even the plague-cursed Guinea coast swamp would suit him better, well, may he eschew the calm of domestic life. It is not his element. There his faculties stagnate. They cannot develop or appear to advantage. It is in scenes of strife and danger, where courage is proved and energy exercised and fortitude tasked, that he will speak and move, the leader and superior. A merry child would have the advantage of him on this hearth. He is right to choose a missionary's career. I see it now. They are coming! They are coming! cried Hannah, throwing open the parlor door. At the same moment, old Carlo barked joyfully. Out I ran. It was now dark, but a rumbling of wheels was audible. Hannah soon had a lantern lit. The vehicle stopped at the wicket. The driver opened the door. First one well-known form, then another stepped out. In a minute, I had my face under their bonnets in contact, first with Mary's soft cheek, then with Diana's flowing curls. They laughed and kissed me. Then Hannah patted Carlo, who was half wild with delight, asked eagerly if all was well, and being assured in the affirmative, hastened into the house. They were stiff with their long and jolting drive from Whitcross and chilled with the frosty night air, and their pleasant countenances expanded to the cheerful firelight. While the driver and Hannah brought in the boxes, they demanded Sinjin. At this moment he advanced from the parlor. They both threw their arms round his neck at once, gave each one he gave each one quiet kiss, and in a low tone a few words of welcome, stood a while to be talked to, and then intimating that he was he supposed they would soon rejoin him in the parlor, withdrew there as to a place of refuge. I had lit their candles to go upstairs, but Diana had first to give hospitable orders respecting the driver. This done, both followed me. They were delighted with the renovation and decoration of their rooms, with the new drapery and fresh carpets and rich-tinted china vases. They expressed their gratification ungrudgingly. I had the pleasure of feeling that my arrangements met their wishes exactly." and that what I had done added a vivid charm to their joyous return home. Sweet was that evening. My cousins, full of exhilaration, were so eloquent in narrative and comment, and that their fluency covered St. John's taciturnity. 
He was sincerely glad to see his sisters, but in their glow of fervor, of full joy, he could not sympathize. The event of the day, that is, the return of Diane and Mary, pleased him, but the accompaniments of that event, the glad tumult, the garrulous glee of reception, irked him. Isahi wished the calmer morrow was come. In the very meridian of the night's enjoyment, about an hour after tea, a rap was heard at the door. Hannah entered with the intimation that a poor lad was come at the unlikely time to fetch Mr. Rivers to see his mother, who was drawing away. Where does she live, Hannah? Clear up at Whitcross Brow, almost four miles off, and more and moss all the way. Tell him I will go. I'm sure, sir, you had better not. It's the worst road to travel after dark that can be. There's no track at all over the bog, and then it is such a bitter night, the keenest wind you ever felt. You'd better send word, sir, that you will be there in the morning. Whoa, Sinjin's mom is still alive? No, this isn't Sinjin's mother. It's a little boy who's come to the door asking for the priest. Oh, because his mother is dying. Okay. Pardon me. (laughs) No, good question. (laughs) But he was already in the passage, putting on his cloak, and without one objection, one murmur, he departed. It was then nine o'clock. He did not return till midnight. Starved and tired enough he was, but he looked happier than when he set out. He had performed an act of duty, made an exertion, felt his own strength to do and deny, and was on better terms with himself. Well, good. Now he can be nicer to his fucking sisters. I am afraid the whole of the ensuing week tried his patience. It was Christmas week. We took to no settled employment, but spent it in a sort of merry domestic dissipation. The air of the moors, the freedom of home, the dawn of prosperity acted on Diana's and Mary's spirits like some life-giving elixir. They were gay from morning to noon and from noon till night. They could always talk, and their discourse witty, pithy, original had such charms for me, and I preferred listening to and sharing in it to doing anything else. Sinjin did not rebuke our vivacity, but he escaped from it. He was seldom in the house, his parish was large, the population scattered, and he found daily business in visiting the sick and poor in its different districts. One morning at breakfast, Diana, after looking a little pensive for some minutes, asked him if his plans were yet unchanged. Unchanged and unchangeable, was the reply. And he proceeded to inform us that his departure from England was now definitively fixed for the ensuing year. And Rosamond Oliver? suggested Mary, the words seeming to escape her lips involuntarily, for no sooner had she uttered them than she made a gesture as if wishing to recall them. St. John had a book in his hand. It was his unsocial custom to read at meals. <laughs> he closed it and looked up. Rosamond Oliver, said he, is about to be married to Mr. Granby, one of the best connected and most esteemable residents of S. Beep, grandson and heir to Sir Frederick Granby. I had the intelligence from her father yesterday. (laughs) His sisters looked at each other and at me. We all three looked at him. He was serene as glass. The match, right? (laughs) The match must have been got up hastily, said Diana. They cannot have known each other long. But two months. They met in October at the county ball at S. Beep. Where there are no obstacles to a union, as in the present case, where the connection is in every point desirable, delays are unnecessary. They will be married as soon as S. Beep place, which Sir Frederick gives up to them, can be refitted for their reception. 
The first time I found Sinjin alone after this communication, I felt tempted to inquire if the event distressed him, but he seemed so little to need sympathy that so far from venturing to offer him more, I experienced some shame at the recollection of what I had already hazarded. Besides, I was out of practice in talking to him. His reserve was again frozen over, and my frankness was congealed beneath it. He had not kept his promise of treating me like his sisters. He continually made little, chilling differences between us, which did not at all tend to the development of cordiality. In short, now that I was acknowledged his kinswoman and lived under the same roof with him, I felt the distance between us to be far greater than when he had known me only as the village schoolmistress. When I remembered how far I had once been admitted to his confidence, I could hardly comprehend his present frigidity. Such being the case, I felt not a little surprised when he raised his head suddenly from the desk over which he was stooping and said, You see, Jane, the battle is fought and the victory won. Startled at being thus addressed, I did not immediately reply. After a moment's hesitation, I answered, But are you sure you are not in the position of those conquerors whose triumphs have cost them too dear? Would not such another ruin you? I think not. And if I and if I were, it does not much signify. I shall never be called upon to contend for such another. The event of this conflict is decisive. My way is now clear, and I thank God for it. So saying, he returned to his papers and his silence. Our mutual happiness, i.e. Diana's, Mary's, and mine, settled into a quieter character, and we resumed our usual habits and regular studies. Sinjin stayed more at home. He sat with us in the same room, sometimes for hours together, while Mary drew, Diana pursued a course of encyclopedic reading she had, to my awe and amazement, <laughs> Diana, of course, undertaken, and I fagged away at German. <laughs> He pondered a mystic lore of his own, and of some eastern tongue, the acquisition of which he thought necessary to his plans. Thus engaged, he appeared sitting in his own recess, quiet and absorbed enough, but that blue of his eye of his had a habit of leaving the outlandish-looking grammar, wandering over and sometimes fixing upon us, his fellow students, with a curious intensity of observation. If caught, it would be instantly withdrawn, yet ever and anon it returned searchingly to our table. I wondered what it meant. I wondered, too, at the punctual satisfaction he never failed to exhibit on an occasion that seemed to me of small moment, namely my weekly visit to Morton School. And still more was I puzzled when, if the day was unfavorable, if there was snow or rain or high wind and his sisters urged me not to go, he would invariably make light of their solitude their solicitude and encourage me to accomplish the task without regard to the elements jane is not such a weakling as you would make her he would say she can bear a mountain blast or a shower or a few flakes of snow as well as any of us her constitution is both sound and elastic better calculated to endure variations of climate than many more robust <laughs> weird like thanks i think uh, and when I returned, sometimes a good deal tired and not a little weather-beaten, I never dared complain because I saw that to murmur would be to vex him. On all occasions, fortitude pleased him. The reverse was a special annoyance. It's almost like he's created a story about Jane in his head. <laughs> right, and refuses to have it altered by facts. Mm -hmm. One afternoon, however, I got leave to stay at home because I really had a cold. The sisters were gone to Morton in my stead. Sat reading I sat reading Schiller, he deciphering his crabbed oriental scrolls, as I exchanged a translation for an exercise. I happened to look his way. There I found myself under the influence of the ever-watchful blue eye. 
How long it had been searching me through and through and over and over, I cannot tell. So keen was it, and yet so cold. I felt for the moment superstitious, as if I were sitting in the room with something uncanny. Mm. Jane, what are you doing? Learning German. I want you to give up German and learn Hindustani. You are not in earnest? In such earnest that I must have it so, and I will tell you why. He then went on to explain that Hindustani was the language he was himself at present studying, that as he advanced, he was apt to forget the commencement, that it would assist him greatly to have a pupil with whom he might again and again go over the elements and so fix them thoroughly in his mind, that his choice had hovered for some time between me and his sisters, but that he had fixed on me because he saw I could sit at a task the longest of the three. Would I do him this favor? I should not perhaps have to make the sacrifice long, as it wanted now barely three months to his departure. Sinjin was not a man to be lightly refused. He felt that every impression made on him, either for pain or pleasure, was deep, grave, and permanent. I consented. When Diana and Mary returned, the former found her scholar transfer- transferred from her to her brother. She laughed, and both she and Mary agreed that Sinjin should never have persuaded them to such a step. He answered quietly, I knew it. I found him a very patient, very forbearing, and yet an exacting master. He expected me to do a great deal, and when I fulfilled his expectations, in his own way fully testified his approbation. By degrees, he acquired a certain influence over me that took away my liberty of mind. His praise and notice were more restraining than his indifference. Mm. I could no longer talk or laugh freely when he was by, because the tiresomely Portune instinct reminded me that vivacity, at least in me, was distasteful to him. I was so fully aware that only serious moods and occupations were acceptable, that in his presence every effort to sustain or follow any other became vain. I fell under a freezing spell. When he said, Go, I went, come, I came, do this, I did. But I did not love my servitude. I wished many a time he had continued to neglect me. One evening, when, at bedtime, his sisters and I stood round him, bidding him good night, he kissed each of them, as was his custom, and, as was equally his custom, he gave me his hand. Diana chanced to be frolicsome humor. She was not painfully controlled by his will, for hers, in another way, was as strong, exclaimed, Sinjin, you used to call Jane your third sister, but you don't treat her as such. You should kiss her, too. She pushed me towards him. I thought Diana very provoking and felt uncomfortably confused. And while I was thus thinking and feeling, Sinjin bent his head. His Greek face was brought to a level with mine. His eyes questioned my eyes piercingly. He kissed me. There are no such things as marble kisses or ice kisses, or I should say, my ecclesiastical cousin's salute (laughs) belonged to one of these classes. But there may be experiment kisses, and his was an experiment kiss. When given, he viewed me to learn the result. It was not striking. I am sure I did not blush. Perhaps I might have turned a little pale, for I felt as if the kiss were a seal affixed to my fetters. Oof. That's good. He never omitted the ceremony afterwards, and the gravity and quiescence with which I underwent it seemed to invest it for him with a certain charm. Mm. Yikes. 
As for me, I daily wished more to please him, but to do so, I felt daily more and more I must disown half my nature, stifle half my faculties, wrest my taste from their original bent, force myself to the adoption of pursuits for which I had no natural vocation. He wanted to train me to an elevation I could never reach. It racked me hourly to aspire to the standard he, standard he uplifted. The thing was as impossible to mold my irregular features to his correct and classic pattern to give to my unchangeable green eyes the sea blue tint of solemn luster of his own not his ascendancy alone however held me in thrall at present of late it had been easy enough for me to look sad a cankering evil sat at my heart and drained my happiness at its source the evil of suspense perhaps you had perhaps you think i had forgotten mr rochester reader amidst these changes of place and fortune not for a moment. His idea was still with me, because it was not a vapor sunshine could disperse, nor a sand-traced effigy storms could wash away. It was a name graven on a tablet, fated to last as long as the marble it inscribed. The carving to know, the craving to know, what had become of him followed me everywhere. When I was at Morton, I re-entered my cottage every evening to think of that, and now at Moore House, I sought my bedroom each night to brood over it. In the course of my necessary correspondence with Mr. Briggs about the will, I had inquired if he knew anything of Mr. Rochester's present residence, the state of his health, but, as St. John had conjectured, he was quite ignorant of all concerning him. I then wrote to Mrs. Fairfax, entreating information on the subject. I had I had calculated with certainty to this on this step, answering my end. I felt sure it would elicit an early answer. I was astonished when a fortnight passed without reply. But when two months wore away, and day after day the post arrived and brought nothing for me, I felt prey to the keenest anxiety. I wrote again. There was a chance my first letter, of my first letter having missed. Renewed hope followed renewed effort. It shone like the former for some weeks. Then, like it, it faded flickered. Not a line, not a word reached me. When half a year wasted in vain expectancy, my hope died out, and then I felt dark indeed. Fine spring shone round me, which I could not enjoy. Summer approached, Diana tried to cheer me. She said I looked ill and wished to accompany me to the seaside. This St. John opposed. He said I did not want dissipation. I wanted employment. My present life was too purposeless. I required an aim, and I suppose by way of supplying deficiencies, he prolonged still further my lessons in Hindustani, and grew more urgent in requiring their accomplishment, and I, like a fool, never thought of resisting him. I could not resist him. One day, I had come to my studies in lower spirits than usual. The ebb was occasioned by a poignantly felt disappointment. Hannah had told me in the morning there was a letter for me, and when I went down to take it, almost certain that the long-looked-for tidings were vouchsafed for me at last— find only an unimportant note from Mr. Briggs on business. The bitter check had wrung from me some tears, and now I sat poring over the crabbed characters and flourishing tropes of an Indian scribe. My eyes filled again. Sinjin called me to his side to read. In attempting to do this, my voice failed me. Words were lost in sobs. He and I were the only occupants of the parlor. Diana was practicing her music in the drawing room. Mary was gardening. It was a very fine May day, clear, sunny, and breezy. My companion expressed no surprise at this emotion, nor did he question me at its cause. He only said, We will wait a few minutes, Jane, till you are more composed. I also, I thought 
he was leaving in three months from Christmas. Apparently that ship got delayed until May. Yeah, right? Is that how you understood it as well? Yes, that is 100% how I understood it. Like, we are well past the time of his leaving. And while I smothered the paroxysm with all haste, he sat calm and patient, leaning on his desk and looking like a physician watching with the eye of science, an expected and fully understood crisis in a patient's malady. Having stifled my sobs, wiped my eyes, and muttered something about not being very well that morning, I resumed my task and succeeded in completing it. Sinjin put away my books and his, locked his desk, and said, Now, Jane, you shall take a walk, and with me. I will call Diana and Mary. No, I want only one companion this morning, and that must be you. Put on your things, go out by the kitchen door, take the road toward the head of the Marsh Glen. I will join you in a moment. That's very weird and cryptic. I know no medium. I never in my life have known any medium in my dealings with positive, hard characters antagonistic to my own, between absolute submission and and determined revolt. I've always faithfully observed the one, up to the very moment of bursting sometimes with volcanic vehemence into the other, and as neither present circumstances warranted, nor my present mood inclined me to mutiny, I observed careful obedience to St. John's directions, and in ten minutes I was treading the wild track of the glen side by side with him. The breeze was from the west. It came over the hills, sweet with the scents of heath and rush. The sky was stainless blue. The stream descending the ravine swelled past spring rains, poured along plentiful and clear, catching golden gleams from the sun and sapphire tints from the firmament. As we advanced and left the track, we trod a soft turf, mossy fine and emerald green, minutely enameled with tiny white flower and spangled with star-like yellow blossom. The hills, meantime, shut us quite in, for the glen towards its head wound to their very core. Let us rest here, said St. John, as we reached the first stragglers of a battalion of rocks guarding a sort of pass beyond which the beck rushed down a waterfall, and where, still a little further, the mountain shook off turf and flower, and only heath for raiment and crag for gem, where it exaggerated the wild to the savage and exchanged the fresh for the frowning, where it guarded the forlorn hope of solitude and a last refuge for silence. I took a seat. St. John stood near me. He looked up the pass and down the hollow. His glance wandered away with the stream and returned to traverse the unclouded heaven which colored it. He removed his hat, let the breeze stir his hair and kiss his brow. He seemed in communion with the genius of the haunt. With his eye, he bade farewell to something. I shall see it again, he said aloud, in dreams when I sleep by the Ganges, and again in a more remote hour when another slumber overcomes me on the shore of a darker stream. Strange words of a strange love, and Astor's patriot's passion for his fatherland. He sat down for half an hour. We never spoke, neither he to me nor I to him. That interval passed. He recommenced. Jane, I go in six weeks. I have taken my berth in an East Indiaman, which sails on the 20th of June. God will protect you, for you have undertaken his work, I answered. Yes, said he. There is my glory and joy. I'm a servant of an infallible master. I'm not going out under human guidance subject to the defective laws and erring control of my feeble fellow worms. My king, my lawgiver, my captain is all perfect. Seems strange to me that all round me do not burn to enlist under the same banner, to join in the same enterprise. 
All have not your powers, and it would be folly for the feeble to wish to march with the strong. I do not speak to the feeble, or think of them. I dress only such as are worthy of the work, and competent to accomplish it. Those are few in number and difficult to discover. You say truly. <laughs> you say truly. But when found, it is right to stir them up, to urge and exhort them to the effort, to show them what their gifts are and why they were given, to speak heaven's message in their ear, to offer them direct from God a place in the ranks of his chosen. If they are really qualified for the task, will not their own hearts be the first to inform them of it? I felt as if an awful charm was framing round the gathering over me. I trembled to hear some fatal word spoken, which would at once declare and rivet the spell. And what does your heart say? demanded Sinjin. My heart is mute. My heart is mute, I answered, struck and thrilled. Then I must speak for it, continued the deep, relentless voice. <laughs> Jane, come with me to India. Come as my helpmeet and fellow laborer. The glen and the sky spun round. The hills heaved. It was as if I had heard a summons from heaven, as if a visionary messenger like him of Macedonia had announced, come over and help us. But I was no apostle. I could not behold the herald. I could not receive his call. Oh, Sinjin, I cried, have some mercy. I appealed to one who, in the discharge of what he believed his duty, knew neither mercy nor remorse. He continued, God and nature intended you for a mercenary's, missionary's wife. <laughs> <Freudian> <laughs> it is not personal, but mental endowments they have given you. You are formed for labor, not for love. A missionary's wife, you must, you shall be. You shall be mine. I claim you, not for my pleasure, but for my sovereign service. Oh, I bet you say that to all the girls. Except for Rosamond, who's made for flesh. You are formed for labor, not for love. Marry me. <laughs> I don't claim you for me. I claim you for Jesus. <laughs> I like that uh, Sinjin is doing all of this like hyper conservative Christian stuff and is being portrayed as the villain in a Victorian novel. And yet... Girl defined can't realize what's wrong with their discourse. <laughs> right. <laughs> I am not fit for it. I have no vocation, I said. He had calculated on the first objections. He had not irritated by them. Indeed, as he leaned back against the crag behind him, folded his arms on his chest, and fixed his countenance, I saw he was prepared for a long and trying opposition, and had taken in a stock of patience to last him to its close, resolved, however, that that close should be conquest for him. Humility, Jane, said he, is the groundwork of Christian virtues. You say right that you are not fit for the work. Who is fit for it? Or who that ever was truly called believed himself worthy of the summons? I, for instance, am but dust and ashes. With St. Paul, I acknowledge myself the chiefest of sinners. But I do not suffer this sense of my personal vileness to daunt me. I know, my leader, that he is just as well as mighty. And while he has chosen a feeble instrument to perform a great task, Task, he will, from the boundless stores of his providence, supply the inadequacy of the means to the end. Think like me, Jane. Trust like me. It is the rock of ages I ask you to lean on. Do not doubt 
but it will bear the weight of your human weakness. I do not understand a missionary life. I've never studied missionary labors. There, I, humble as I am, can give you the aid you want. I can set you your task from hour to hour, stand by you always, help you from moment to moment. This I could do in the, in the beginning, soon, for I know your powers. You would be as strong and apt as myself and would not require my help. But my powers... Where are they for this undertaking? I do not feel them. Nothing speaks or stirs in me while you talk. I am sensible of no light kindling, no life quickening, no voice counseling or cheering. Oh, I wish I could make you see how much my mind is at this moment like a rayless dungeon, with one shrinking fear fettered in its depths. The fear of being persuaded by you to attempt what I cannot accomplish. I have an answer for you. Hear it. I have watched you ever since we first met. I have made you my study for ten months. I have proved you in that time by sundry tests. And what have I seen and elicited? In the village school, I found you could perform well, punctually, uprightly, labor uncongenial to your habits and inclinations. I saw you could perform it with capacity and tact. You could win while you controlled. Yikes. In the calm with which you learnt you had become suddenly rich, I read a mind clear of the vice of Demas. L- Lucker? Looser. Looser? It's gold, is what it is. Had no undue power over you. And there was resolute readiness with which you cut your wealth into four shares, keeping but one to yourself, and relinquish- relinquishing the three others to the claim of abstract justice. I recognized a soul that reveled in the flame and excitement of sacrifice, in the tractability with which at my wish you forsook a study in which you were interested and adopted another because it interested me in the untiring acidity with which you have since persevered in it, in the unflagging energy and unshaken temper with which you have met its difficulties, I acknowledge the complement of the qualities I seek. Jane, you are docile, diligent, disinterested, faithful, constant, and courageous, very gentle, very heroic. Cease to mistrust yourself. I can trust you unreservedly. As a conductress of Indian schools and a helper amongst Indian women, your assistance will be invaluable. My iron shroud contracted roundly. Persuasion advanced with slow, sure step. Shut my eyes as I would, these last words of his succeeded in making the way, which had seemed blocked up, comparatively clear. My work, which had appeared so vague, so hopelessly diffuse, condensed itself as he proceeded and assumed a definite form under his shaping hand. He waited for an answer. I demanded a quarter of an hour to think before I again hazarded a a reply. Very willingly, he rejoined, and rising, he strode a little distance up the pass, threw himself down a swell of heath, and there lay still. I can do what he wants me to do. I am forced to see and acknowledge that, I meditated. That is, if life be spared me. But I feel mine is not the existence to be long protracted under an Indian sun. What then? He does not care for that. When my time came to die, he would resign me in all serenity and sanctity to the God who gave me. The case is very plain before me. In leaving England, I should leave... A loved but empty land. Mr. Rochester is not there. And if he were, what is, what can that ever be to me? 
My business to live without him now. Nothing so absurd, so weak as to drag on from day to day, as if I were waiting for some impossible change in circumstances which might reunite me to him. Of course, as Sinjin once said, I must seek another interest in life to replace the one lost. Is not the occupation he now offers me truly the most glorious man can adopt or God assign? Is it not, by its noble cares and sublime results, the one best calculated to fill the void left by uptorn affections and demolished hopes? I believe I must say yes, and yet I shudder. Alas, if I join Sinjin, I abandon half myself. If I go to India, I go to premature death. And how will the interval between leaving England for India and India for the grave be filled? Oh, I know well. That, too, is very clear to my vision. By straining to satisfy Sinjin till my sinews ache, I shall satisfy him to the finest central point and farthest outward circle of his expectations. If I do go with him, if I do make the sacrifice he urges, I will make it absolutely. I will throw all on the altar, heart, vitals, the entire victim. He will never love me but he shall approve of me. I will show him energies he has not yet seen, resources he has never suspected. Yes, I can work as hard as he can, and with as little grudging. Consent, then, to his demand is possible, but for one item, one dreadful item. It is that he asks me to be his wife and has no more of a husband's heart for me than that of frowning giant of a rock down which the stream is foaming in yonder gorge. He prizes me as a soldier with a good weapon, and that is all. Unmarried to him, this would never grieve me, but can I let him complete his calculations coolly, put into practice his plans, go through the wedding ceremony? Can I receive from him the bridal ring, endure all the forms of love, which I doubt not he would scrupulously observe, and know that the spirit was quite absent? Can I bear the consciousness that, Every endearment he bestows is a sacrifice made on principle? No, such a martyrdom would be monstrous. I will never undergo it. As his sister, I might accompany him. I might accompany him, not as his wife. I will tell him so. I looked towards the knoll. There he lay, still as a prostrate column, his face turned to me, his eye beaming watchful and keen, and started to his feet and approached me. I'm ready to go to India if I may go free. Your answer requires a commentary, he said. It is not clear. You have hitherto been my adopted brother, I your adopted sister. Let us continue as such. You and I had better not marry. He shook his head. Adopted fraternity will not do in this case. If you were my real sister, it would be different. I should take you and seek no wife. But as it is, either our union must be consecrated and sealed by marriage, or it cannot exist. Practical obstacles oppose, oppose themselves to any other plan. Do you not see it, Jane? Consider a moment. Your strong sense will guide you. I did consider, and still my sense, such as it was, directed me only to the fact that we did not love each other as a man and wife should, and therefore it interfered, inferred we ought not marry. I said so. Sinjin, I returned, I regard you as a brother. You as me, you, me as a sister. So let us continue. We cannot. We cannot, he answered with short, sharp determination. It would not. It would not do. You have said you will go with me to India. Remember, you have said that. Conditionally. Well, well, to the main point, the departure with me from England, the cooperation with me in my future labors, 
You do not object. You've already as good as put your hand to the plow. You are too consistent to withdraw it. You have but one end to keep in view, how the work you have undertaken can best be done. Simplify your complicated interests, feelings, thoughts, wishes, aims. Merge all considerations in one purpose, that of fulfilling with effect, with power, the mission of your great master. To do so, you must have a coadjutor not a brother, that is a loose tie, but a husband. I, too, do not want a sister. A sister might any day be taken from me. I want a wife, the sole helpmeet I can influence efficiently in life and retain absolutely till death. I shuddered as he spoke. Same. I felt his influence in my marrow, his hold on my limbs. Seek one elsewhere than in me, Sinjin. Seek one fitted to you. One fitted to my purpose, you mean. Fitted to my vocation. Again, I tell you, it is not the insignificant private individual, the mere man with the man's flesh and the man's selfish senses I wish to mate. It is the missionary. And I will give the missionary my energies. It is all he wants, but not myself. That would be only adding the husk and shell to the kernel. For them, he has no use. I retain them. You cannot. You ought not. Do you think God will be satisfied with half an oblation? Will he accept a mutilated sacrifice? It is the cause of God I advocate. It is under his standard I enlist you. I cannot accept on his behalf a divided allegiance. It must be entire. Oh, I will give my heart to God, I said. You do not want it. I will not swear, reader, that there was not something of repressed sarcasm both in the tone in which I uttered this sentence and in the feeling that accompanied it. I had silently feared Sinjin till now because I had not understood him. He had held me in awe because he had held me in doubt. How much of him was saint, how much mortal, I could not hereto foretell, but revelations being made in this conference, the analysis of his nature was proceeding before my eyes. I saw his fallibilities. I comprehended them. I understood that, sitting there where I did, on the bank of the heath and with that handsome form before me, I sat at the feet of a man, erring as I. The veil fell from his hardness and despotism. Having felt in him the presence of these qualities, I felt his imperfection and took courage. I was with an equal, one with whom I might argue, one whom, if I saw good, I might resist. He was silent after I had uttered the last sentence, and I presently risked an upward glance at his countenance. His eye bent on me, expressed at once stern surprise and keen inquiry. Is she, ar- is she sarcastic? And sarcastic to me, he seemed to say. What does this signify? Do not let us forget that this is a solemn matter, he said ere long, one of which we may neither think nor talk lightly without sin. I trust, Jane, you are in earnest when you say you will give your heart to God. It is all I want. Once... Wrench your heart from man and fix it on your maker. The advancement of that maker's spiritual kingdom on earth will be your chief delight and your endeavor. You will be ready to do at once whatever furthers that end. You will see the impetus would be given to your efforts and mine by our physical and mental union in marriage, the only union that gives a character of permanent conformity to the destinies and designs of human beings. Passing over all minor caprices, all trivial difficulties and delicacies of feeling, all scruple about degree, kind, strength, or tenderness, mere personal inclination, you will hasten to enter into that union at once. Shall I? 
I said briefly, and I looked at his features, <laughs> beautiful in their harmony, but strangely formidable in their still severity. At his brow, commanding but not open, at his eyes, bright and deep and searching, but never soft, at his tall, imposing figure, and fancying myself in idea, his wife. Oh, it would never do. As his curate, his comrade, all would be right. I'd cross oceans with him in that capacity, toil under eastern suns and Asian deserts with him in that office, admire and emulate his courage and devotion and vigor, accommodate quietly to his masterhood, smile undisturbed at his ineradicable ambition, Dis discriminate the Christian from the man, profoundly esteem the one and freely forgive the other. I would suffer often, no doubt, attached to him only in this capacity. My body would be under rather a stringent yoke, but my heart and my mind would be free. I should still have my unblighted self to turn to, my natural, unenslaved feelings with which to communicate in moments of loneliness. There would be recesses in my mind which would be only mine, to which he never came and sentiments growing there fresh and sheltered, which his austerity could never blight, nor his measured warrior march trampled down. But as his wife, at his side, always and always restrained and always checked, forced to keep the fire of my nature continually low, to compel it to burn inwardly and never utter a cry, though the imprisoned flame consumed vital after vital, this. Would be unendurable. Sinjin, I exclaimed, when I had got so far in my meditation. Well, he answered icily, I repeat, I freely consent to go with you as your fellow missionary, but not as your wife. I cannot marry you and become part of you. A part of me you must become, he answered steadily. Otherwise, the whole bargain is void. How can I, a man not yet 30, take out with me to India a girl of 19, unless she be married to me? How can we be forever together, sometimes in solitude, sometimes amidst savage tribes, and unwed? Very well, I said shortly. Under the circumstances, quite as well as if I were either your real sister, or a man and a clergyman, like yourself. It is known that you are not my sister. I cannot introduce you as such. To attempt it would be to fasten injurious suspicions on us both. And for the rest, though you've a man's vigorous brain, you have a woman's heart, and it would not do. It would do, I affirmed with some disdain. Perfectly well. I have a woman's heart, but not where you are concerned. For you I have only a comrade's cons constancy, a fellow soldier's frankness, fidelity, fraternity, if you like, a neophyte's respect and submission to his hierophant. Nothing more. Don't fear. It is what I want, he said, speaking to himself. It is just what I want, and there are obstacles in the way. They must be hewn down. Jane, you would not repent marrying me. Be certain of that. We must be married. I repeat it. There is no other way. And undoubtedly enough, love would follow upon marriage to render the union right, even in your eyes. I scorn your idea of love, I could not help saying as I rose up and stood before him, leaning my back against the rock. I scorn the counterfeit sentiment you offer. Yes, Sinjin, I scorn you when you offer it. He looked at me fixedly, compressing his well-cut lips while he did so. Whether he was incensed or surprised or what, it was not easy to tell. He could command his, com his countenance thoroughly. I scarcely expected to hear that expression from you, he said. I think I have done and uttered nothing to deserve scorn.
I was touched by his gentle tone and overawed by his high, calm mien. Forgive me my words, Sinjin, but it is your own fault that I have been roused to speak so unguardedly. You have introduced a topic on which our natures are at variance, a topic we should never discuss. The very name of love is an apple of discord between us. If the reality were required, what should we do? How should we feel? My dear cousin, abandon your scheme of marriage. Forget it. No, said he. It is a long-cherished scheme and the only one which can secure my great end, but I shall urge you no further at present. Tomorrow I leave home for Cambridge. I have many friends there to whom I should wish to say farewell. I shall be absent a fortnight. Take that space of time to consider my offer, and do not forget that if you reject it, it is not me you deny, but God. Through my means, he opens to you a noble career. As my wife only can you enter upon it. I refuse to be my wife, and you limit yourself forever to a track of selfish ease and barren obscurity. Tremble, lest in that case you should be numbered with those who have denied the faith and are worse than infidels. He had done. Turning from me, he once more looked to river, looked to hill. But this time, his feelings were all pent in his heart. It was not worthy to hear them uttered. As I walked by his side homeward, I read well in his iron silence all he felt towards me, the disappointment of an aster and despotic nature which has met resistance where it expected submission, the disappropriation of a cool, inflexible judgment which had detected in another feelings and views in which it had no power to sympathize. In short, as a man, he would have wished to coerce me into obedience. It was only as a sincere Christian he bore so patiently with my perversity and allowed so long a space for reflection and repentance. That night, after he'd kissed his sisters, he thought proper to forget even to shake hands with me, but left the room in silence. I, who, though I had no love, had much friendship for him, was hurt by the marked omission, so much hurt that tears started to my eyes. I see you and St. John have been quarreling, Jane, Diana said. Diana said. During your walk on the moor. But go after him. He is now lingering in the passage, expecting you. He will make it up. I have not much pride under such circumstances. I would always rather be happy than dignified. And I ran after him. He stood at the foot of the stairs. Good night, St. John, said I. Good night, Jane, he replied calmly. Then shake hands, I added. What a cold, loose touch he impressed on my fingers. He was deeply displeased by what had occurred that day. Cordiality would not warm nor tears move him. No happy reconciliation was to be had with him, no cheering smile or generous word, but still the Christian was patient and placid, and when I had, when I asked him if he forgave me, he answered that he was not in the habit of cherishing the remembrance of vexation, that he had nothing to forgive, not having been offended. And with that answer, he left me. I would much rather he had knocked me down. <laughs> So the silent treatment is as devastating in the 1840s as it is today and is emotional abuse. I mean, like, it's really interesting um, the kind of relationship they fall into. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, An abusive one. Where he's just like teaching her a language and it starts to, you know, encroach on her whole life. It's like apt people. Like, I think the book is very, like, self-aware of the fact that, like, this almost seems like Sinjin trying to regain control after, you know, the person he was at least attracted to decided to spend their life with someone else rather than wait for him. And then he's getting rejected this second time, which probably feels huge to him because he does think of himself as a very important person and doesn't seem to recognize the irony of like the deep vanity and all of his like humble posturing totally like you won't belong to me as wife but you belong to god like that kind of and you have no way to get to god except through me right like that kind of supernatural appeal even when he's like pulling her away from the sisters like this entire chapter just read like the handbook of abuse where like even when she talks about going with him as sister and like what it would mean just to be sister where she would have the calm recess of her most innermost self still alive a place that he couldn't overcome or trammel like holy shit like what (laughs) what what an important self-reflection but also like what a fucking pittance the only thing you really have then is yourself and like that's cool but like jesus christ so the office created when they made the english version of the the first version um Mm -hmm. they realized that they had made the boss character kind of a villain and they wanted to show that he wasn't like a truly bad person so they created like whatever the english todd packer is just to show that he's like not a true villain and i think perhaps that's part of sinjin's job is to foil the villainy of Rochester. And we start off with like this thing where she's completely uncomfortable being herself, right? When as she builds a relationship with him and starts to like tuck herself in and seal herself off just while she's learning a language near him. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Rochester, it was more of like an unsealing and an opening up. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to your point about the fact that he's just like Rochester. He doesn't want her for her body. He wants her for her soul. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly the like through a mirror darkly thing. Exactly. Like it's a total misunderstanding because like Rochester does deeply want to possess who Jane is. He wants like her secret garden untrammeled self and he wants it as a companion Sinjin, as you said, created this entire narrative of her meekness, her docility, and then, like, he throws in heroism as, like, some sort of fucking boon. But, like, when he says that he wants the missionary and not the woman, it's, like, the same thing as, like, I want the spirit, not the flesh. But he, like, has invented missionary Jane. He's, like, entirely misunderstood her. Yeah. I will say, like, both ends are towards possession, Yes. And I think, you know, that's maybe also working to help us understand Jane more as like someone who finds this consistency in her life where men want to possess her soul. And maybe we shouldn't be afraid of the men who objectify us. Maybe we should be afraid of the men who want our souls. That's a lot scarier. That's a way scarier thing to say to somebody. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want your ribcage or your boobs. I want what's underneath it. Beating. I don't like you for your boobs. I like you for your brains is kind of already, always already terrifying. That's a terrifying thing to say. 
Yeah, I think especially in this framing when she refers to her innermost self as her vitals and that like her vitals would be consumed. Yeah, the complete victim. And then he says God yeah. doesn't want uh, a mutilated sacrifice. He wants the whole piece. Here's what I have to say. Since when? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't he tell Abraham to cut that baby in half? <laughs> he, yeah, he told Samson to cut the baby in half. He told Abraham to cut off his, well, to kill his son. And then he's like, just kidding. I'll just take the foreskin. Um, I'll just take the foreskin. He's constantly taking mutilated not things. To, to say nothing of what his uh, so-called son, Jesus Christ, had to endure. That guy wasn't in, like was not whole physically by the end of his experience. Um, that's why it was so weird when he was whole physically at the end of his experience, right? People are like, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was like, perhaps he was just unconscious and now he's conscious again. <laughs> People are like, whoa, that guy was fucked up and now he's not, right? Like, of course God takes mutilated <laughs> sacrifices. <laughs> Sinjin doesn't want a mutilated sacrifice. Sinjin wants... A nice, perfect wife. Yeah. Desire as ownership is, like, desire is is not to, like, share with somebody, but to, like, possess them is repeated. Body and soul. But I don't think that that's a self-aware theme in the book. Like, I I think the book thinks that's romantic and wants to show us so far. I think the book thinks is romantic in Rochester because it's like he sees Jane truly. And the other part of this that I want to talk to you about is like Rochester wanted to marry Jane and is talking about marriage even though he's married to Bertha and like that's not like they can't have a legal marriage or a, but they can have a spiritual marriage. They can have a they can't have a legal marriage, but they can have a real marriage. And here she's being offered the exact opposite. She's She's like, it's the confines of the legality without the emotion. I think there's something in there about the idea that like in England, it's called the coverture where like a woman becomes legally dead when she's married because the husband's citizenship rights cover her. That's what coverture means. And like, I think that's coming through really clearly here where it's like marriage without affection is is illegal and also a total death. Like there's nothing that you have no recourse. You don't even have the recourse of affection. Yeah. I think she did consider though, whenever she left Rochester, that if she did choose to stay with him, she would likewise have a death of the soul. Yeah, she did. And Rochester did try to like actually marry her. That's one of the more baffling things about this book. Like he actually tries to legally marry her. Like, I know why, but I wonder why the book does that. I think that's a good question. I also think, like, the other thing that I find terrifying about Sinjin's proposal is that his argument makes total sense. He's like, we have to be married. People know that we're not actually related. If we go together, people are going to say terrible things about us. Like, it's not going to go well for us if we aren't married. And, like, I can't, as an unmarried man under 30, take a girl of 19 with me. Like, that's super fucked up. 
Which is like the exact opposite of Rochester, yeah. who's like, I'm definitely going to like pretend to marry this 19 year old and definitely, in fact, make her a bigamist. So that's weird, too, because like Sinjin's arguments are so fucking logical and like Rochester didn't have a legal leg to stand well, on. Well, but Rochester also was like, we don't need a legal leg to stand on. Like, who gives a fuck? Right. Because we, we love, love each, each other, other and like, we'll be fine. Because he was rich and untroubled by the law. <laughs> I mean, I think Sinjin's kind of grasping at straws. Because there is a world, like, so she just doesn't come with you. Like, why are you so committed to having her come with you? And I think it actually has very little to do with God, right? Oh, for sure. He wants to have, he wants a white woman to have sex with. <laughs> Maybe. I, <laughs> I, I think that's like really clear. Like I, I think this is a moment where it's like when she says that the saint fell away and that she sees him clearly for the first time and that like sees that he's fallible and that she's speaking to an equally fallible mm. human. It's like he wants to be married to her because he desires her physically, but also he's facing down a pretty long journey that might be lonely. And like as weird and unsocial as he is, like – Nobody likes to be lonely. Yeah. I think I think he desires someone physically and is trying to like yes. avoid complication future complications for himself. It is better to marry than to burn. And I think you know, he's got that whole aspect. I just think it feels in this chapter, it's a long chapter, but it feels like kind of a sudden shift from like Sinjin being like aloof and weird to being like possessive, controlling. And also it demonstrates, it's a quick shift. And so I think like everything he's doing in this chapter is actually the book is doing something for Rochester as opposed to like something for Jane or something for Sinjin, you know, like this is all work towards our final boss. I kind of wish it was more complex than that. Like, I wish there was something about Sinjin that was his fixation on Jane was particular. And I mean, yes. it is particular, but like it could have happened to anybody. <laughs> yeah, like there's no other girl in the district. So except for his sister's. Yeah, like, it would be cool if it was, although I think it does, you know, demonstrate why you should not leave a vacuum for your thoughts. Like, you should express yourself because people will just dump in whatever they want. And the next thing you know, you're, like, sitting there quietly for 15 minutes after, like, a really mean proposal just happened. <laughs> I think that's a really excellent point that this book is making, where it's, like, if you don't speak up, people will make narratives for you. And, like, that's exactly what Sinjin did. I wonder if the book is even making that much of a leap or if the book is just, like, stating, like, just because someone – like, I wonder if this statement isn't for the people creating the narratives, not the people creating the vacuums. Mm. Like, what you think about this woman might not be true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
it seems like this book doesn't think that Sinjin can be reached. Like, he seems imminently unreasonable in this Right, moment. but exactly. Like, the book is showing how unreasonable that is. And I think the book is speaking to other Sinjins, like, is imagining an audience of Sinjins and Rochesters hmm. rather than... Or, like, I think the book is envisioning having an impact on Rochesters and Sinjins rather than, like, having a bunch of, like, Janes who are now going to be, like, plucky and vocalize you know like that feels like a way bigger obstacle in victorian england it seems like the easier sheep jump is to tell men just because someone hasn't said something doesn't mean that like they don't think something you know that's so interesting i like i honestly have conceived of this audience especially because we're like reading this in the context of romance novels and romance landia like i was conceiving of this audience even in victorian times early victorian times as like a female audience but that's there's no reason that that's true oh my god what does it change about my reading if this is a book for rochesters and sinjins i don't know <laughs> well she dedicated it to uh william makepeace thackeray yeah, her second edition. And like a massive dedication. What yeah, what does it mean then? I think that's actually really good. That's like you've shifted the frame for me. Because when she says I am equal, and she says it a couple of times, that's why this book is like considered a proto-feminist text, because you have a woman saying I am equal to a man in these ways. And like I have even when she says, I don't have a woman's heart for you, I have the heart of a fellow comrade. Like that was that's an earth shattering thought in the 1840s that a woman could have like that kind of soldier's heart and thinking about it, like not like as an inducement or an encouragement or like a call to arms for women, but as a a call to men to recognize the humanity of women, like a call to allies. Holy shit. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if it's a call to allies. Well, certainly a call to think differently. I think I don't know if it's a call so much as a point as in like jabbing your finger at something <laughs> so that people see it. Women are people. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. I don't know. Well, but like at the same time, like I think about other texts from this era, it's not like there was like a dearth of heroines with like internality they all had internality but they're not asking or even talking about equality in the same way like even if we're just looking at the brontes like catherine in weathering heights isn't speaking on that level internally or externally she is like in the beginning of the text definitely like ruffling the status quo and definitely interested in that and is then punished and punishes for it yeah suffers for it it's not like jane austen's heroines are asking well they're asking for a quality of feeling but not quite in the same way as this and not as explicitly and they are like living quite independently yeah we've always just had this one kind of heroine who's like somehow like flouting like their feminine role in life like we've always like we're always interested in women who aren't being uh we're much more interested in women who are defying their gender roles than those that are adhering to them. 
And I wonder if it isn't because overall we think like living more masculinely is like a more interesting life, period. Or a better life or a more free life or like a more authentic life. Yeah. And that's capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also, it is capitalism, but thinking about this and like, especially in terms of Pride and Prejudice, there's this beautiful thing in the 2005 special features where um, the actress who played Mrs. Bennett is talking about how she got into that character. And it's clear that the interviewer asked her a really rude question about Mrs. Bennett. Like, how do you get into like the annoying headspace of this like fucking annoying woman? And that actress like doesn't take the question on its face. And she's like, she has five daughters and she is the only person in her whole world who seems to understand the weight and the gravity and the stakes of having five daughters. Like, of course she's an erotic. She's scared to death that her children and herself will starve to death. And just to have someone take Mrs. Bennett's nerves seriously is like... Mrs. Bennett understands capitalism and understands patriarchy because she's literally fucking trapped by it, doesn't see any other way out. And she's like, I got to get my daughters married. There's literally no other choice. Like, we will starve to death if they aren't married. And and she's made silly in the text. And like Elizabeth and Jane are lauded in their way. But like, Mrs. Bennett's fears are well-founded. But Mrs. Bennett's fears are also for a collective and not for an individual. That's super true. That's super true. So I think that's part of it. To be feminine is to be like affixed on a certain idea of like a collective, right? Like you have to take care. You sacrifice for others is like kind of an unseen part of this like domestic sphere. Whereas men get to like self-sacrifice if they want, but mostly that's like they're full of passion and vigor and are seeking their happiness and striving for their individuality and I think that's what you know like I think Lizzie is striving for her individuality and I think Jane is striving for her individuality and in that way you know like she is not at all generous to Bertha no not at all nor is the text she is not at all generous to the school girls right not a lot of empathy there not at all Loves Diana. (laughs) Yeah, thinks they're great. But like, yeah, there's something there, I think. I think you're right, too. This idea of collectivity versus uh, individual fulfillment as and like that's part of where the breakage here of feminine and masculine is lying. That's really interesting. But I, you know, I talked earlier about how I feel like this is almost like a meta critique of romanticism and Byronic heroes, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just resentment sour grapes puckering some of the text you know or being like they're doing it wrong like how i am with people who have money if they're not putting parquet floors in why the fuck do they even have it i don't think this person has ever bought an ice sculpture in their (laughs) life and we're not taxing them they fucking want every wealthy person should be taxed the cost of one ice sculpture Per week that they do not buy an ice sculpture. But that week has to have the average temperature of July in Arkansas. 
No, they have to, no, just every week, no matter where they are in the world, no matter what they're doing. I don't care if it's a legal holiday. No, but like the size of the ice sculpture that would have to last for like a four hour event would have to sustain the temperatures of July in Arkansas, right? Because like it can't just be like a little ice sculpture that they're being taxed, right? Like it like. Yeah, they can't put any more Freon into the atmosphere either. So no, no, right. don't try to exactly. get clever and put the ice Mm-mm. sculpture in a Mm-mm. deep freeze and then bring it out the next week and be like, Mm-mm. oh, it's my new ice sculpture. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. No. Um, and that's how we'll know you deserve to be rich. Like, if you're willing to go there. <laughs> if you're willing to go to yeah. Svalbard, <laughs> cut it yourself. How serious are you about being a wealthy person if you are not willing to purchase an ice sculpture each week? And it's nothing to them. It's a rounding error on their... Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast and you think that I'm talking about you, I'm not. <laughs> because nobody with the, who is actually wealthy, the 1% probably don't listen to Womance, uh, public access reading of Jane Eyre. They listen to our regular show. Although, if they wanted to become a patron, uh, they are we welcome say to. No. <laughs> yeah, they are very much encouraged. Anything else about this chapter? No, it was delightful. Thank you so much for letting me read it and all of my angry Sinjin, uh, you know, worms in the hands of an angry god way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening, fellow worms. <laughs> fellow worms. <laughs> Fellow worms, loosen your janes. But never your heirs. Mwah. Mwah.